Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Danny Pai is the COO at Rowan, a venture-backed health and wellness company reimagining ear piercing. Prior to joining Rowan, Danny led operations at Uber, where she helped grow ridership and reliability of the service in New York City, and also helped launch Uber Eats in several cities. Danny started her career as a consultant at Oliver Wyman and obtained her MBA from Harvard Business School and an undergraduate degree in economics from Columbia University. In this episode, you'll learn about the importance of believing in yourself and why no one really has it figured out, when an MBA may be the right decision for your career, and the importance of passion in one's career. Hope you enjoy this episode and let's get started. Hi, Danny. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Justin. Um, so tell our listeners, where in the world are you right now? So I'm currently based out in Long Island. Um, so we just had a child, uh, a baby boy last June. And I guess <laughs> a one-room studio in Brooklyn between my husband and I both working from home and the baby just wasn't going to cut it. So we're <laughs> actually <in> more room. <laughs> And how has it been uh, raising a child during the last, you know, t- 12 months uh, while the world has been so different? Obviously, there's a lot of positives, but how have you been been managing with that? I think the most difficult aspect of it was I had in my mind, um, I guess, what it meant to be like a family, meaning extended family, at least when you have mm-hmm. a baby and all of the awesome things that come with that, grandparents coming and visiting. I think that was definitely the toughest aspect of having a baby in the middle of COVID, just not having the baby be able to meet his, you know, grandparents. Um, I think, like you said, from a optimistic perspective, it was awesome because I didn't feel like we were missing out on anything. Nothing was happening for a year. Right really were able to stay at home and enjoy every moment with Bert. So um, that's been really, really amazing. The extra time, right? And I mean, for better or worse, all parts of our lives are like converging and the lines are very blurred. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, when I first, when we were planning on having a baby and like putting together that day-to-day schedule, we, we were actually going to put him in daycare and I was looking at my calendar and saying like, okay, well, I'll work, you know, nine to seven, pick him up at daycare. And now we work all day at home. We do have a nanny with us. Um, and since he's been born, we never miss a single bath time. And it's, that has truly been an amazing experience. Just being able to see him every single day. That's something that my husband and I definitely cherish a lot. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And with two young kids myself, I feel like it's such a precious time because we really see a lot of, if not all, because both my kids are still at home, all of the inputs that are part of their day. So anything that they learn or say or, or pick up as a new skill, we 
we have a much um, easier time trying to point to, oh, where do we think that we got that, right? Because it's not like they picked it up from the outside world because all, all they do all day is pretty much stay at home and uh, see us and, and their grandparents. So it is that's, definitely fun. <laughs> that's very funny you say that because um, I think what he's learned from me and my husband working at home is that we just talk to screens a ton because we're always on Zoom calls. And yeah. so he'll literally hold up something in front of him and just yell at it. Um, it, it sometimes he holds a like he'll hold a rag to his ear and pretend that it's a phone and just literally yell into it. It's um, it's quite funny. It's like uh, press a mute button, press a mute button. Have you figured that out yet? Um, and did you uh, already go back to work? Are you still on maternity leave? How how have you managed your uh, time off and managing um, life as a mom? Yeah, so. I started um, as a head of growth at Rowan when I was five months pregnant already. And so I was very open with um, Louisa, our CEO, when, when I was looking for a job because I wanted someone who was going to, I mean, Louisa herself, she has three kids. Um, you know, I wanted someone who's going to be able to understand that I'm going to put in the work to build a company um, and with the team, but I also want to be someone who has a child and have a family life as well. Um, so I started, Bert came in June. Um, I, I took a three month maternity leave, but you know, popped in and out just because with startups, it's hard to disappear for three months and come back. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's three months is six years <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and the business changed even popping in and out like every week. The business changed just tremendously in that three months. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've been fully back at work since September, and it's it's been really great. That's great. And um, for folks who aren't familiar with Rowan, can you share a little bit more about um, the mission and, and um, yeah, what the company does? I love to. So we are an ear piercing company um, that works with registered nurses. Um, and our mission is really to redefine ear piercing. Um, it is a milestone that many women and men, um, sell, you know, do, and it's a, it's an act that's, it's a service act that's performed millions of times a year. Um, and it's a milestone that should be celebrated and there should be a component of safety to it, but no one has really done a great job providing that safety and celebration. And so at Rowan, what we're all about is, you know, our tagline, which I love is safety first, style always. Um, we wanna make sure that you feel safe, um, that the person piercing your ears is going to do a good job taking care of you. Um, and that afterwards that we're doing the best that we can to provide you with the knowledge to take care of yourself. Now, after all, ear piercing is a, it's a, it's a, it's an open piercing in your ear, yeah. right? And not many people understand that a lot of piercings, um, you know, almost 30% of piercings end in a bad outcome because oh, wow. they're not educated um, post-piercing to like understand what type of aftercare is required. Um, and that's what we're here for. We're defining piercing. We're across the, the US um, in targets. We're actually aiming to be in close to 400 targets this year. And we have our own brick and mortars as well. And we sell our own hypoallergenic jewelry. Wow. And what, like in terms of volume, 
what's the split between in-store brick and mortar, um, whether it's your own shops in Target versus at home? So um, most of our piercings are with Target right now. I mean, that's what's so exciting about the partnership. Um, we're growing like bonkers across the country with Target. Um, but we're definitely putting a lot of work towards building our own brick and mortars as well. Very interesting. And when you kind of think about this and you, you did your uh, MBA at HBS, like thinking about who are you ultimately disrupting with this? Um, where, who should, which, which industries or companies should be worried about, um, you know, what Rowan is doing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the obvious answer is probably the Claire's of the world and the piercing pagodas. And mm -hmm. certainly that is our initial thoughts when we um, started building the business. Um, but we're also a company that employs hundreds and hundreds of nurses. Yeah. And what type of services can we provide um, to our customers and guests? Um, I think really our view is we want to get ear piercing right and we want to do this expansion right, but there's so much else out there that we can offer with our nurses. Mm. So is to the extent you can share is like the immediate focus going to be on piercings, but potentially it could, could expand to other services. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And share a little bit more about what you do as COO. Um, what's in scope? How do you and Louisa kind of figure out and divide and conquer between uh, the both of you and the rest of your, your team? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's interesting because the COO role really truly differs so much, mm. um, company to company. For me, I certainly started with a deeper focus on the service aspect. In fact, when I first joined, you know, one of the titles that we discussed was head of service. Um, and that's because the service aspect, there's so much nitty gritty operations that go into making sure an ear piercing with the nurse goes off without a hitch. Mm. Um, so from that respect, you know, I cover most of our, you know, day to day with the targets, um, day to day with our own studios. Um, the ordering of supplies, um, the logistics of getting that supply into all of the different cities that we're located in. Um, but Louisa is involved in every aspect of the company. Um, I would say she's much more focused on, uh, you know, the vision, right? Um, so you ask what services other than ear piercing. Um, really, she's driving that vision for us. Um, she's focused on being the being the face of a company. Um, she's out there speaking a ton about our nurses, about what we're trying to do as a company, um, kind of engaging directly with investors. Um, and also from a brand perspective, she's kind of the the living, breathing version of the brand as well. Um, so it's uh, it's been very, very interesting kind of, working so closely with her and seeing how she embodies all of that. But um, yeah, it's been a great experience. That's great. And, you know, you, you kind of touched on how your, the scope of your role includes um, just overseeing services. It sounds like there's a bit of logistics involved as well. Um, share a little bit more about how your, your experience before Rowan 
uh, whether it's at Uber or Oliver Wyman, help prepare you for uh, what you're doing today? Yeah, happy to. I mean, <laughs> I think that I loved all of the different experiences I've had. Um, and maybe it's my personality, but my view is everything happens for a reason. And when I was a consultant, um, one of the basic core like building blocks that I learned was process. You know, how do you build process for someone um, or build process for something that you have almost no idea what the details are? Like, what does it mean to go in and like implement process? Um, I also learned the basics of, I think, just generally communicating process or communicating um, a set of requirements that someone else is going to go and then execute. Um, at Uber, it was a totally different experience, but it was like the nitty gritty logistics, understanding, okay, so we have the app, but how do you literally get physical cars to move physical people and physical goods? You know, what are the potential efficiency issues you're going to run into? Um, and again, how do you build process that's scalable, right? When I was when I joined Uber, I mean, by no means were we small, but there certainly were things that we were doing where it's just not scalable. So how do you take something that's happening live in front of you and make that into a scalable process? Um, from my perspective, that's if you boil it down to basics, that's what's happening at a startup every single day. Mm -hmm. um, you're testing, you see, you know, a test roll out in front of you. It certainly isn't scalable from day one. You want to see it live. You want to see how your customers react to it. You want to see how your employees react to it. And then from there, once you see it live, you'll try to understand like, okay, is there a benefit to our customers? Is there a benefit to us growing as a company? And then from there, you build a process where that process, that you know, situation or um, that events becomes scalable, and you can do it a hundred times a day. You can do it a thousand times a day. Um, so really, like that's, <laughs> I think that's what my job entails. Mm -hmm. And would love to just unpack even the decision to leave Uber, go to business school. Um, could you share a little bit more about your thought process at the time and what what you were um, looking for? Because you know you were at Uber for a couple of years. I'm sure the company was doing excellent when you were there as well. Um, so if you could share more about the decision process for those who might be considering an MBA, uh, would be great to hear. How yeah, you thought about it. Um, I think what's interesting is the way that I would describe myself right now is not risk averse. Um, I would say that I'm actually quite risk-seeking at this point. Um, but, you know, when I started my career in consulting, there I would have certainly described myself as very risk-averse. All of this to say is your risk appetite changes depending on where you are in life and how you feel about where you are potentially mm. professionally as well. Um, so I want people to approach it not as a static statement, but rather as it's a sliding scale and really depends on everything else happening in your life. Um, before me, moving from consulting to Uber, I realized, you know, that was a jump for me from a risk level, <laughs> even though it sounds silly now. When I was making the switch, I was like, am I making the wrong decision? This is quote unquote a startup. It was definitely not a startup. 
and you know this is a risk by the time i joined uber i was like wow what was i thinking this is the <laughs> best job ever i should have done this way 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 uh, you know long time ago once i was at uber i loved my experience there i loved you know i was in the uber new york office i loved my you know my peers my my friends i still am very very close with a ton of people um, that i worked with, with there but one of my takeaways was that I should have joined earlier. I mm. should have joined Uber earlier and I'm missing out on all the upside of what it means to be at quote unquote startup. And really that would, that drove my decision to go to HBS because I really wasn't sure that, I mean, maybe it was because I was still a little risk averse, but I wasn't sure I could just launch a company right off the bat. I constantly had these questions like, okay, what are all of these like weird marketing terms people are talking about? Like what, you know, I just know operations. I don't truly really know, you know, what finance does either. I just felt like I needed a more holistic view of what it meant to like run a business. Mm -hmm. Reflecting back, I loved my HBS experience and I'm happy to talk more about that, but reflecting back, I certainly didn't need an MBA to go and like join an early stage startup, but I needed it to feel more secure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the the primary thing driving me, um, driving the decision to get an MBA when I was at Uber was, I want to be part of something younger, but I don't know if I have the toolkit to do it right. And now you feel like you have that. Or at least like, you you know, I think a lot of it is like, I did my MBA as well, is having the mental models and mm -hmm. like at least knowing where you might have blind spots or um, where you need to ask for help, you know? Part That's of that, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. I think um, one of the things, so, you know, before school, I've only worked in two companies, right? And so my perception of the world was driven mostly by those two experiences. One of the best parts about school was me listening to like yeah a hundred people talk about their own experiences. And really the takeaway is most of the time, no one has any idea what they're doing, period. Yeah. <laughs> no one has any idea what they're doing. So that provided, not to say that's okay, but like everyone is constantly, it's a growth model. Everyone is learning. And so um, that gave me a ton of comfort. Also, the kind of, it's a comfort to know that like, hey, I need to start trusting my own abilities to go and execute on things that I do know really well and do really know well. But I also need to be okay with just asking questions and going out there and ping whoever I can when I do have a question and getting their advice. Um, because frankly, that's what, most leaders do. They don't have all the answers. They just know what they don't know and they go and figure out the answers. Yeah, that's that's a great insight. Um, I also really like that framework of, you know, sliding scale of risk because I've definitely felt that, right? And especially after having a couple of kids and just like figuring out what are my priorities here? How much um, additional stress do I want to add in my life? Whether yeah. that's through work, through um, focusing more on my fitness, you know, all, all the things that uh, make up our portfolio of who we are. Um, yeah. And I'm curious to know, like, if we kind of um, 
rewind a little bit to your childhood. What what was your um, childhood like? What were you curious about? And if you could also share a little bit more about you know, the influence that your parents had on what you ended up um, studying <laughs> and pursuing after college. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in China. I moved to the States when I was five. Um, I grew up with my grandparents. My parents um, came to LA, um, you know, I think when my dad was 28 or 29 and my mom was um, 26. So very young. Um, and I would say that, you know, in general, I had a great childhood. My family only did better as we got older. Um, I have a little brother as well. He's six years younger than me. Growing up in Southern California, um, just such a beautiful place. Not a lot of Asians, I have to say, at the time. Um, and that's because when I say Southern California, I mean, you know, past south past Irvine um so more like Mission Viejo Laguna Hills area um I would say as I reflect back on what you know what are the things that happened that made me make the decisions that I later made in life um I became very risk averse um, not because my parents told me, like, get a job and stick with that job, but rather because my dad switched jobs all the time. Gave me a very, it was a very high anxiety, like, lifestyle, him switching jobs and then us moving quite a bit. Um, now, we didn't move far, but we certainly moved a ton. And I think as a child, it was just, like, I wanted more stability. And that certainly drove why I decided to choose consulting <laughs> straight out of college. Um, in terms of like what I studied in college, I have to say, I mean, in all honesty, I probably should have been an engineer like my dad suggested. Um, but the, probably the only reason I didn't want to was because I didn't want to just listen to what he was telling me. <laughs> yeah, so I you're rebelling. yeah, I chose econ instead. Um, and I, I, I still love it, and I think partially that choice was driven by just the sheer number of people and friends in college that was studying econ, which you know is not the greatest decision-making model, but it ended up okay, um, and yeah. That's great. And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do even post-college? Um, no or, idea. Yeah, no, no idea. idea. Yeah, I think it's very funny because I, I do um, – I do some like mentorship. Um, sometimes it's with like business school, sometimes it's with like undergrads. And obviously one of the biggest questions people get is like, how did you figure out what you wanted to do? And I some like when I get that question, sometimes I just laugh because you don't, <laughs> some people don't know truly what they wanna do well into their 40s and 50s. It's just like, that is going to be the question that you're constantly asking yourself your entire life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the short of it is, no, I had no idea what I wanted to do and really fell into consulting because of a classic answer of like, hey, you get to see a couple of different companies yeah. and see how it works. Yeah, maximizing the option value and um, pushing out the decision to make a more narrow choice down the road, which is what I did as well. So. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, very, very neat. Um, and I mean, you, you know, you, you touched on mentorship. What are some things um, you would uh, advise people who are earlier in their career who are just like trying to figure out what they want to do? Um, any advice on how they should be thinking about it um, or kind of like, you know, op making the right decision for them? And obviously it's very personal, but if you have any yeah. broad advice that you feel like has run true to your mentees. I, this is something that was more recently said to me that I, when, when my professor at HBS said it, I was like, this is a perfect description of life, at least to me. Um, I don't know if you've ever been sailing, um, and I don't, I've only been sailing twice, and I, I tried to learn how to sail, and, you know, some, somewhat got it, but <laughs> it was definitely a very touch-and-go experience, and I don't know the terms, but um, when you sail, you never go directly in a perfectly straight line. You actually have to have a point that you want to go towards, and then you zigzag to that point because the whole point is that you're trying to catch wind, right? Mm. Um, and when he said that, and this is like, you know, an 80-year-old man describing how he views life, I was like, that is the perfect description. Most people generally have somewhat of a point, understanding of a point they want to get to. It's not perfect, but you have like a general direction. And my, my view is just, okay, let's put some velocity behind that. And you got to know that you're not going to get from point A to point B. That's not how life works. It's a lot of zigzagging, you know, like hopefully not so much like circling back, but it, that's okay too, right? If it means getting to the end point. Um, and the, sail, the whole sailing experience is not just like, oh, hey, I got from point A to point B, but rather here's the path that I took. Um, so I think for me, that's a beautiful metaphor for life and just being okay with the fact that it's going to take time to get somewhere that you want to be. And it's going to, it's not going to always feel like you're moving to, uh, exactly in the right direction. But as long as you feel like you're, there's like some speed behind it and you are moving toward the general direction that you want to be, then give yourself some grace and like be happy about that. Mm -hmm. Great advice. And I love the, that analogy too, right? There are things you can control, like setting the sail, having a path, having yeah. an endpoint, but there are things like the weather. Exactly. <laughs> as, as, as much as you want to plan for that, that's, that's out of your control. Exactly. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I, I guess, you know, next question is um, more around, um, taking care of yourself, right? Um, you are a relatively new parent. You are the CEO of a startup. Um, you're also a spouse and partner. What do you do to recharge your batteries and make sure you're at your best um, for all the people in your life and your community? Yeah, I think this um, question is <laughs> very tough. And I guess I'm of the Jeff Bezos mindset where I don't believe there is a work-life balance where you say like this week I'm going to do 40 percent um, family life, you know, 50 percent work and then 10 percent something else. But rather 
you zoom in and out depending on how things are going. Mm. Um, so it's been extremely busy at work. Um, and I have a young child. And I think what that meant in the last couple of months is just quite simply less sleep and less relaxation time. I actually haven't, <laughs> you were talking about gymming or exercising earlier. I, I was thinking this morning, I actually haven't exercised since maybe January. Um, so it's been six months. So <laughs> I'll have to start thinking about that at some point. Um, but I think for me, the, the one thing that I do try to keep consistent is reflecting. And so I journal, um, when I was younger, I used to journal almost every day and I wish I could do that, but I just, right now I can't. And so I try to journal at least once a week, um, and think about, just reflect on things that happen. Sometimes it's like small details, that's funny that I want to remember. Other times it's just actually me talking about all the positive things that happened that week to remind myself of how amazing everything is. Mm -hmm. um, I jot down things that I'm worried about or that I'm annoyed by to try and just get it off of my chest. Um, but I find that for me is my, is what I do for myself from a wellness perspective. That's um, and yeah. I love it. And I, I would definitely recommend it to anyone. Mm. And do you have uh, specific prompts that you follow or do you just kind of freestyle depending on what's on your mind and what you want to express? I freestyle. I've actually, <laughs> I've tested different prompts. I yeah. really, someone, someone I went to school with once suggested like, um, um, like T3B3s of the day. I love What's that. that? T3, uh, basically B3. like top three things that happen. Oh, bottom three? Day bottom three days, just like very consistently, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of listing that out. Um, the benefit with something like that is, at least from what I hear from other people is during the day, you're constantly looking for that, like, amazing three things then write in your journal. And yeah. that keeps people like very optimistic and um, happy. Um, but for me, it's just very much like a freestyle. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I've, I've also gotten in and out of journaling as well. And it's like the best and uh, free form of therapy, right? Yeah. It, it, as long as you can get yourself in the habit and, let, and like be pretty transparent with it. And do you generally do uh, freehand? Like you actually write yes. pen and paper? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. That actually, when I travel, that actually stresses me out because I hate packing a lot of things, but I will always pack my journal and I'm always just like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I, there's actually been times where I'll like write journal on just you know loose pieces of paper yeah. and just tape it back into my journal <laughs> um but yeah i love to actually physically write it down yeah there is something about that like physicality of like writing pen and paper which is even though my handwriting sucks now and i'm sure the <laughs> next generation um will have even worse handwriting but um yeah there is something nice about just writing in, in pen and paper um, and, it, you know, a couple more questions is um, one is more about just, you know, your experience being uh, Asian American and um, navigating through your professional and, and personal life. Do you feel like there are any specific skills that Asian Americans should be over indexing on or being much more mindful of uh, given, you know, some 
cultural uh, tendencies to err one way or another? Or do you feel like that isn't um, something that needs to be addressed? I have to say that I probably, um, I don't know if this is a unique view, but I have found in my circle of friends that this tends to be a little different. And so, you know, growing up in a city that didn't have a lot of Asian Americans, I think there's two ways that kids go. One is to be very, very aware that they're Asian. And the mm -hmm. other is to be very, very unaware that they're Asian. Yeah. And I don't know what happened with my childhood, but I ended up being the latter, which is I never felt like race or any of that was just not a variable or a filter that I ever had. Mm -hmm. And so it's often very difficult for me to see when other people are actually like racially biased towards me because I just see as that person's being, let's say, just generally disagreeable. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm not, I've never really tried to over-index or under-index in any sense. I just, you know, this is, I'm pretty like a, pretty much an open book and I just do what I do. Um, so I, you know, I, I realize the answer is not totally helpful here, but that's certainly been my personal experience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing with the identity, right? It is experienced at different levels by different people. Um, and I do feel the same as well, like being born in Canada is multicultural and very diverse here. I never felt, you know, other than a, you know, a few minor, minor things, like never felt like it was a handicap. And I do feel like Asian Americans in general have done a good job of assimilating into, you know, the fabric of um, the states and, and North America, hence the term model minority. But on the other hand, I feel like there's also, because we don't see it, it's it's also hard to um, to fully claim the flag that we are a minority because we're really like, even looking at Google, the stats, the diversity stats, think about over 40% of the Google workforce identify themselves as Asian. That is not a minority, right? Like that's, that's a, a large amount of uh, Googlers. So it is quite interesting, um, you know, when, when you shared how you view your identity of like, it hasn't really been a thing that you've overthought or has really been part of, um, you know, your, your journey. Because um, I, I do feel like that is a case for a lot of people as well. Um, cool. And then, you know, just uh, last two questions are um, number one. Um, what are your thoughts on passion, right? There's a whole school of thought. F follow your passion, follow your gut. Like, you know, it's very much like within the DNA of the American dream. Um, what's your thought on that? Like, has that been a useful framework for you? Or has there been something else that has been a guiding force for uh, your career journey and success? I think, I think I stand by that framework. Um, you know, I think um, my, my view is that life is too short to be getting up and working hard every day for something that you truly don't care anything about. 
um, that's on, of course, one extreme. Um, but, and, you know, and that if you end up doing something that you're extremely passionate about, it doesn't feel like work, which from my perspective is how I feel right now. Um, I think passion is tough to <laughs> define. And I also don't want people to think like, well, what if you're passionate about this one day and something else the next day? Like you shouldn't see these like large swings. Um, the other thing is I would say like look for passion underneath just that first level. What I mean is um, I recently hired an amazing woman on my team. And when we first started talking, she said, I don't know if I can be passionate about ear piercing. And I said, okay, I hear that, you know, different people on the, on the team should be passionate about different pieces of what we do. But I said, like, but I'm going to push you to think about, like, what are we actually doing here? We're employing hundreds, if not thousands, of first responders and nurses who work grueling hours, like 12-hour shifts at the hospital. Um, and we're basically saying, let me give you kind of a side hustle where you're bringing joy to someone's life and you're celebrating a seven-year-old girl's like milestone birthday with her family. You know, coming out of COVID, they're all going, they're getting her ears pierced together. Um, I get emails from my nurses all day about like how much they love the job, not because of the money that they're making or the tips that they're making, but because they get to do something where they literally see joy and that's not something that they've seen in the hospital this past year. Mm -hmm. So I had a long conversation with her and ultimately she joined us, but she was focusing on like, well, this is an ear piercing business and you guys sell jewelry. And I would push people to think about like, but what are you doing at the end of the day? You're building a product or you're building a service that's going to be for these people or for these types of employees and really truly find sometimes like look at the situation you're in and find your passion as well. Mm, that, that's a great story too. And I feel like it is like within each of our own responsibility to do that work, right? Whether you work yeah. at a big company, small company, there's something there if you want it to be there. Um, so it's a, it's a great example of how, you know, one person could see it one way, but if you actually just think about it and reframe it differently, it could actually be much more meaningful. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a good point on like, what is passion? How do you define that? Right. And you and I, we worked uh, very briefly at the Clinton Foundation in the nonprofit space. And, you know, there are many ways to spin that as well. But um, I think whether it's for profit or nonprofit or even um, uh, public service, like there's there's meaning in everything you you do. It's about you personally finding that story that resonates with you. Um, exactly. Great. Thank you. And I guess, you know, last question is um, any advice you would give to your younger self? Broad one, but. Um, I think it's probably the same advice I would give to any college kid, um, which I briefly mentioned earlier, but it's just generally like, 
I wouldn't stress out about not knowing what you want to do after college, much less in years after college, because it takes time and everyone is going on their own journey. And frankly, everyone is still a little bit lost, no matter what age they're at. <laughs> um, but I just enjoy it instead of spending all of that time worrying because life is going to happen anyways. So what is the point of like you sitting there and worrying day in, day out? So that's, I think that's what I would say to myself. Good advice. Timeless. Enjoy the journey. Um, don't worry about the zigzags as yep. long as you're kind of getting in, going in the right direction um, and making progress. Yeah, exactly. Danny, thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, I'll give a plug for Rowan. Uh, I know you and the team are hiring quite a bit, including a MBA intern. So um, they can find more on heyrowan.com, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're also hiring a uh, director of retail. So definitely Great. let me know. And ideally you're... looking for somebody with like brick and mortar e-commerce experience? Or We're looking one for or someone with you know, brick and mortar experience, large company, Target, yeah. Walmart experience. Yeah. yeah, cool, awesome. So good to connect. Um, thanks so much, Danny. And hopefully we can reconnect soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.